I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the follow-up to Get Out by director Jordan Peele, Us, plus Sebastian Lelio's English-language remake of his 2013 movie Gloria, Gloria Bell. Let's get started. They know where we are. We need to move and keep moving. They won't stop until they kill us. We kill them. going to be an interesting one to talk about because I can already see this one getting a bit more of a mixed reaction than Get Out, which was universally beloved, I think, upon its release. And I think it still holds up really well as a, not only a horror movie, but as a sort of like this piece of pop culture that took the world by storm. And, and also not to mention, you know, something steeped in, uh, racial politics and racial tensions so when us the the trailers for us started dropping people were already hooked because number one jordan peele's proven himself with his first outing as a as a writer director and number two it looked weird and interesting and you get exactly what you were sold it is weird and interesting but i've mixed i have a bit more mixed feelings about it i'm not in love with it but I'm glad to see people still praising it, even if they don't necessarily love it. Uh, I am seeing a lot of love for the movie, too, but, uh, because it is good. And it's very emotionally driven. Um, the premise, as shown by the trailer, and here's the th- I'm going to do a non-spoiler review, and then I'm going to get big into spoilers, because the spoilers are where most of my contention kind of lies and I don't want to give that away to anybody who hasn't seen the movie yet so I'll give a spoiler alert when I'm getting getting into that but yeah the the cast here is great you've got Winston Duke and Lupita Nyong'o uh (laughs) coming in you know two uh Black Panther alums (laughs) coming in we've got M'Baku and uh what's her name from what's her character from uh Black Panther ah forget I've already forgotten, sadly. Um, I don't think she's from the comics, or maybe uh, Nakia. Yeah, I forget if she's from the comics or not. Um, she may have been an invention for the film, for all I know. I'm not very steeped in uh, Black Panther comics to know for sure. Um, but at any rate, yeah, they they get back. They're back. They're here as uh, as a couple uh, with a with a teenage daughter and a young son. And they're off to go on vacation. Uh, you know, I, I was speculating if it was vacation or if they were moving. I, I figured it was vacation because they didn't have that much with them. And apparently they have a, they use um, her mom's old home in Santa Cruz and in Santa Cruz, California to uh, as sort of like a summer home for them. So it's close to the beach and it's close and there's a, like a lake nearby. It's nice and fancy so they can just kind of chill there for the summer. And, uh, you know, they establish early but, uh, yeah, but they establish early on in the movie that, uh, Lupita Nyong'o's character, uh, 
uh, I'm gonna have to look up the names again for this movie because I don't remember the names specifically. Um, uh, Adelaide is um, is suffering. It suffers from post traumatic stress disorder of some kind from an incident that they open with in the in the 80s of her at the Santa Cruz boardwalk. There's a horrifying incident that she doesn't talk about afterwards, and it and it serves as a as sort of like the impetus for her post traumatic stress, and the reason she doesn't like to return to Santa Cruz is this horrible incident she had uh, as a kid, and we learn more, you know, we learn more about that as the movie goes along, and we see flashbacks and whatnot. Um, but the night they, they they go hang out with uh, Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker uh, playing Kitty and Josh, uh, who are you know your more upper uh, upper middle class sort of well to do white couple, and you can tell like uh, Winston Duke's character Gabe has sort of like a rivalry self imposed rivalry with uh, Josh because he's he's always kind of like seeing what seeing all the nice stuff Josh has and he's like oh, man I want that stuff too man he's, he's shoving it in my face man he knows I want it um, but but then but yeah at any rate um the that the night they after they get there and they and they're in uh, their power goes out and uh this weird family shows up in their driveway and it turns out it's exact copies of themselves. Who are these weird clone like figures? That's where the reveal comes in later on in the movie. But these are weird psychopathic versions of themselves that are out to kill them. And the family has to try and survive as best they can. And, uh, we, you know, as time goes on, we learn that there's all, you know, that there's so much more to this going on and that, you know, this family isn't the only one who has weird psycho clones of themselves. And they're all wearing these red jumpsuits and have one leather glove. It's a leather fingerless glove of some kind. I'm not sure what, what it's for. I think some kind of sporting glove, like a tennis glove or a... Um, a bowling glove of some kind. I'm not sure if it has a specific use, but it's a leather, one single leather fingerless glove and a pair of shears. And that's their sort of main uh, design uh, uh, to, you know, for their sort of serial killer-y vibe. And they use shear, these shears to try and kill uh, their, their, their originals or whatever, the, you know, the, their copies the their doppelgangers whatever and yeah yeah it, it was a it was it hooked you in it definitely hooked you in so it's an interesting premise and the visuals here are phenomenal there Jordan Peele has is going for almost like an art film kind of thing uh, especially with this sort of chanting um, motif in the music that it will play at certain points and. They, you got great visuals like uh, the one kid uh, getting engulfed in flame. Uh, you've got the climactic fight is absolutely stunning to watch, and and it's you know there are he 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 makes great use of like darkness and light, and yeah, the visually speaking, it's great, and and the premise is definitely 
very, you know, very, very interesting and very, very interestingly executed, I'll say. I'll get more into my uh, qualms and the spoilers, but Lupita Nyong'o is phenomenal at playing. Like, everyone who plays dual roles uh, is is great because they, like, most, in fact, most people are playing dual roles all the way to um, uh, the flashback with Adelaide's parents and the whole flashback scene uh, has has the actors at one point playing dual roles because of this prem because of this um, conceit of the doppelgangers and they they everyone doing pulling double duty is showcases great great range like yeah even like even like the, like even though um the girl playing young Adelaide and the and uh, the the boy playing the son uh. Evan Alex playing Jason, he they they they're they can kind of come off as uh kind of awkward and not very well. Like maybe they're do, doing one line delivery, but then they play the doppelganger and they're phenomenal. So it's it was even Winston Duke has some weird deliveries in there. So I think some of the deliveries are weird and awkward, but overall. Um, yeah, the, the, it, since everybody's pulling double duty on this sh- on this movie, it's uh they get to showcase their range from being this you know more mundane sort of character to this outright serial killer sort of unhinged craziness. So you get to see and and like you Tim Heidecker from Tim and Eric plays Josh and uh, and yeah you don't expect him. Yeah, you mean he he plays kind of a douchey character as Josh, but then as the doppelganger, like it's he's so delightfully evil, and he plays it perfectly. And Elizabeth Moss as both, like once again, everyone playing dual roles is is great, and they do a great job. So so I can't you know even though the I I found some of the deliveries to be off putting and awkward, and could have used another take. I think I think the overall performances are great, I, especially Lupita, who carries this movie as Adelaide and this character of Red, who is sort of the most um, we hear about the uh, doppelgangers and the sort of the sort of the uh, avatar character for how we learn about this doppelganger, whatever they are. So she does phenomenal in this, and yeah, I will say I don't think it's as tight as Get Out. I think to Get Out knew exactly what it wanted to do and was able to tell its story without too much flourish and too much deviation and was able to explain exactly what it needed to so you weren't leaving with too many questions. This one's more open-ended. That's why I think it's more of like an artistic film. It's more of like an art film. And in fact, it's playing at the Art House Cinema in my in Akron, so it's definitely that style of movie. So don't go in expecting like a straight horror movie like Get Out was. This is more of like an art film, and in that regard, yeah, it, it's it, it's you know as long as you're not expecting like more narr- you know tighter narrative and more traditional sort of storytelling aspects. If you're at, if you're looking for good visuals, good you know good solid horror and and you know, great performances. Yeah, 
us is phenomenal and yeah it's still gonna it's still it's currently on my favorite of 2019 so far but we'll see how long it stays there it'll probably end up in either the 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 honorable mentions or maybe the uh or maybe end up getting uh knocked off just because i like it i don't love it though so it's good this is definitely my pick of the week but uh yeah it's i got some issues with it but which i'm gonna get it to Right after this alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Once again, your final warning. This is your final warning. If you don't want to spoil it for us, then tune out now. Skip ahead to the next review. Uh, for those who are sticking behind... My biggest issue with this is that the doppelgangers make no sense. I mean, they're not supposed to make too much sense. I mean, it's just supposed to be conceit for this doppelganger uh, population. Uh, they they throw away some line about them being some sort of experiment, but there's not really any real explanation for them. They're called the Tethered. And the idea is that they are shadows of the people above the world. They live underground in the in one of these abandoned tunnels under America, uh, which they hint about at the opening of the movie. And they are the idea is that they have to. They are stuck reenacting. They, 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 I think they were trying to go for like they were a military experiment that didn't go anywhere so they were left to their own devices and so they were living their own private hell by reenacting the lies of the people above them that they're tethered to and it took until adelaide met red as a girl in santa cruz which is the traumatic experience she suffered and then red came up with this idea to uh which is tied into hands across America for no real discernible reason. Uh, they they hint that Red is tr is setting up some kind of statement to the above world, and so there's hints there. You see these tethered standing in standing in the hands across America pose. Uh, once they're done killing their doppelganger, once they're done killing their counterparts, and it doesn't really mean anything i think it's just a random reference just because like it was a thing in 1986 and so it's like because because like adelaide wore a hands across america t-shirt that gave red the idea to use that as her statement once she got above ground and but that but by that regard at what point were they able to break did, did it did they have to work to break free from their from their uh, counterparts so that they weren't fully tethered to them so they didn't have to? Because that's the thing. When we see the flashback of young uh, Red, we see that they are like literally mimicking body movements of the people that they're tethered to. So how do they overcome that? And they very clearly haven't fully overcome it because that's how... Um, that's how uh, jo Josh's counterpart is uh, engulfed in flame. Josh tricks him, uses the conceit of him being a shadow to set him to get the kid to set himself on fire, and yet, meanwhile, Red and uh, uh, the climactic fight between Red and Adelaide that I mentioned is really well shot. Red 
is not stuck mimicking Adelaide at all. Uh, they're they're very they're acting independently of each other. So then, where is the how? What is the line? How how tether, how much how are they how tethered are these doppelgangers to their counterparts anymore? If it's not it, see, it's not very consistent. So logically, it's not there's not a lot of sense being made. But it's not. But it's also operating as an art film. It's not trying to be logical. It's trying to be more visually and emotionally driven. So it's so. I think that's where my problem lies. Is that the logic is very hit or miss because it's sometimes it's not consistent. But not only that, but the tethered's planned. Like Red's plan to recreate Hands Across America with the tethered to show that they exist after killing their counterparts. Like what's what is what I'm I'm not quite it feels like it's arbitrary to be there like it feels like it didn't even need to be there there didn't even need to be a hands across America reference at all it could have just been the tethered go above ground and kill their counterparts and then just begin living their lives you know it could have just been that sort of thing like an invasion of the body snatcher sort of they've come for your livelihood and they've taken your place and it's your shadow overtaking yourself. You could have been, I think I think that would have been more horror. I think that would have been more horror driven. That would have been the horror uh, resolution, not some the, the hands across America thing. The way it's played out is almost like uh, it's it's like him be, trying to make a, a weird joke about it, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And if it was trying to be a joke, I think it would have been even funnier because. For those who don't, who, for those who weren't around then, this was before I. This was two years before I was born. But I remember, uh, like I used to watch a bunch of nostalgia-driven stuff, like VH1's "I Love the '80s" would talk about "Hands Across America," and "Hands Across America" was this weird campaign as of like sort of peace activism to show that we are all Americans, and it was some weird thing. I don't even, I don't think it worked out at all. Uh, from what I remember, but there was a there was even a song written for it, Hands Across America, and there was like this whole thing. And I think having that play at the outro would have been a perfect end note. Like I think that that was supposed to be the joke is like this weird twisted horror version of Hands Across America. By the end, ending it with the song Hands Across America would have been perfect that would have been too that would have been absolutely perfect but it doesn't it ends on some other song uh yeah the te so i'm the tethered aren't as well well create well crafted as the uh white family from get out i think that family was a much tighter horror villain rather than the tethered which seemed to be just sort of half-baked it seems like they're not quite done yet um and of course given that's a horror movie there are you know that that you know you tend to have a final twist reveal and the twist reveal for this one is that it turns out that the adelaide we've been following it was actually red the whole time and adelaide was the red that was the red that she was the red in the movie so the real adelaide was the red who led the rebellion to the upside to the upper upper world and adelaide and red was the adelaide who married gabe and had a normal life and it's like didn't really mean anything like what does this mean that 
that she was kind of a serial killer the whole time? Like, did what, like, what, there was no, it's a twist that, like, you can, you can kind of see coming, because they, because it's so vague about what happened in, uh, when she was a kid, and, yeah, the, the reveal that it was a, a, a switcheroo, that Red took Adelaide's place, and then Adelaide led the rebellion, that doesn't, it felt unnecessary, and then the final shot before the before like this big helicopter shot of the devastation of all the like the the weird uh, devastation caused by the tethered uh, and like the police and news helicopters uh, buzzing around or across where you know and then cities and cities smoldering and in smoke and fire. Um, the final shot is as soon as uh, the Adelaide we've been following realizes she's been red the whole time, she looks to uh, Josh, who's been sitting in the front seat next to her, and he has this weird look about him. So I think they're hinting that he may have been Pluto, her actual son, and that the twist is the tethered just fully re- replaced their counterparts. But how many tethered were there versus their counterparts like how much of the population was it there's what the twist doesn't really do anything it's kind of just sort of like ooh, it's like a since since uh jordan peele's uh hosting the new twilight zone reboot it felt like sort of like a ooh twilight zone and uh doesn't but it didn't really mean anything it doesn't really like amount too much of anything you know whereas so many really good twists are like just bam you know like holy cow that made you holy cow like so many really good twilight zone episodes where the final twist is revealed it's like oh oh wow holy crap and you're like mind is blown here it's more like okay then yeah, you just you're just like I don't know. Uh, so yeah, us I don't like as much as Get Out. I think Get Out is tighter story wise, and I think it's it, it's it it you know it knows what it wants to do. Whereas here, it's more of him experimenting. It's him trying out stuff, which is good. It's not a fail. I wouldn't call this a failed follow up, but I do think it's not quite as good as uh, Get Out was for me. And yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Still my pick of the week, but you know, just be just be aware that it's not exactly logically driven. It's very much more emotionally and visually driven. It's a, it's an art film for all intents and purposes. I love you. You understand? Get away from the car. Please. Calls me every five minutes. Don't pick it up. I won't. Is that him? Yeah. Oh my god. Honey's guy could die tomorrow. We could all die tomorrow. Well, when the world blows up, I hope I go down dancing. So Us was actually going to be my only review for the week, which led to me trying to figure out what other what discussion I would be having uh, in regards to Us, and I was kind of looking at uh, sophomore slumps for the for the longest time, just because I didn't have anything else I could talk about. 
And then I watched Gloria Bell, and then I found out um, one of my local theaters is uh, that will pick up more indie movies uh picked up the latest from a24 and sebastian lelio's uh 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 first american production after uh gaining uh notoriety for ma- for uh directing a fantastic writing i think writing and directing a fantastic woman uh the chilean uh movie about the uh, trans woman who and who uh whose lover dies or boyfriend dies and the family tries to uh, you know, keep her from gaining what was promised to her in his will. Um, it won best uh, foreign language film for 2018, and this is his sort of follow up to that. It's a, and it's actually a remake of a 2013 movie he made called Gloria, which is same premise. It's an older woman divorcee, you know, kind of util- trying to live her best life, and the sort of we. It's sort of like a weird, ro- dark romantic comedy of sorts, romantic dramedy. From what I can tell, and so here you've got the same premise, just with uh, Julianne Moore as Gloria Bell, and then you've got John Turturro as her sort of boy, as her boyfriend, uh, and then Brad Garrett, and then but and it, but it mainly mainly centers on uh, Julianne Moore and Gloria. Uh, the only other real prominent character is John Turturro, but like Brad Garrett shows up for a couple of scenes as her ex-husband. Uh, Michael Sarah shows up in like two scenes as her son. Um, I forget who the actress is who plays her daughter. Uh, Sean Astin shows up for like a scene, yet he's fourth build. Uh, and on IMDb, Rita Wilson's apparently in here somewhere. And that's the other thing too. Like they give character names, but I have no idea who any of these people are. Um, wait, Rita Wilson. I think Rita Wilson's like her best friend who only shows up in like two scenes. Uh, there's some woman who plays like a German coworker of hers that only shows up in like two scenes. Uh, yeah, like they give names like Veronica, Peter. Well, Peter, I know because that's Michael Sarah, and that was her, and that was her son. Uh, uh, Hillary, I think, is her mom. But like, there's no last, there's no real last names given. There's no real, uh, there's no real like anything given to that extent to to let us know who these people are. So I have no idea who these people are, and the all the there's like a single sentence for the premise: a free spirited woman in her fifties seeks out love at LA dance clubs. That's it. That's the that's the synopsis for the movie from IMDb. So like nobody is giving this movie any attention, and they really just do not care about it. Like a lot of Yubak is in this. Uh, 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 Hispanic voice actress Alana Yubak, who you may know from Coco, playing Mama Imelda. She was Serena and Legally Blonde, uh, Naomi and Waiting. But I know her as like. A voice actress. She's been in. I'm trying to find some things you would know. Ben Ten, Omniverse. She was a voice in uh, Pound Puppies, the reboot they did in 2010. She was a voice in. Uh, let's go back to the 90s, though. I think that's where Timo Supremo, Ozzy and Drix. She was the vo- she was the voice of uh, uh, the the little kid mayor in that show. 
Uh, she kind of has a raspy voice, almost like um, uh, who's the actress who plays Bobby Hill? Um, oh God, what's her name? She's also on Louie. She was she she like has played uh, opposite Louie on both uh, his. Uh, sitcom and his uh, FX show. What's her name? Pamela Adlon. Uh, that took me a second. Pamela Adlon. Uh, she Alana Yuba kind of has that voice to a quality to her. She's a little raspy, like she you know she's been a smoker. Uh, let me try to find something else. Uh, El Tigre. She was the main character in El Tigre. Uh, she was in Spectacular Spider Man. Uh, Brandy and Mr. Whiskers, she was Lola Boa, for those who watch Disney Channel. Um, trying to see if there's any other kids' cartoons people recognize. She was Josie on Beekman's World, for those who are older. Um, but yeah, I know her, I know her mainly as a voice actress. So when she was in, when I, Timo Supremo, uh, Rope, she was Rope Girl and Skate Lad, uh, for Disney. So she's been a voice actress for most of my uh, time knowing her. And yet to see her like mentioned as like a of of like a actress in a live action movie, I was completely thrown off and I have no idea who she played in this movie because I didn't recognize her in the slightest. So a lot of Yubok is like right under Julianne Moore, and I have no idea who her character was. Uh yeah, this movie is weird. That's just weirdly under, under sort of, under sort of. There's no metadata to this movie. I'll say, it, I'll put it that way. And yeah, and then the trailer itself is kind of what gave me my idea for the discussion, which is uh, good trailer making because this trailer promised a romantic drama good romantic dramedy more on the comedy side it, it looked like a like a sort of quirky indie romantic comedy from what i was being sold um especially with like the whole gloria by what's her name shoot what's that song uh gloria song of some girl i'd never heard of uh laura brannigan apparently that's one of her big hits from 1982 i know it's a cover of an italian song uh, but yeah, Gloria is, uh, Umberto Tozzi, uh, wrote the original song. And then, uh, Laura Branigan is known for the cover she did in 1982. I have no idea what, if, if she was a bigger thing in the eighties or not, but, uh, but yeah, that's with that song playing in the background. It's like, you think it's going to be a fun, like wacky romantic comedy and not even wacky but like an indie romantic comedy like oh here's these crazy things that are happening but in actuality it's kind of just a meandering slice of life movie it's actually kind of boring and all th all things considered uh i have no idea if this is just lelio's style i haven't i never got the chance to see a fantastic woman i, I do want to go check it out though um but yeah, it just kind of follows Julianne Moore through a series of vignettes that are tangentially related. But there's not a real, like, narrative. And there's not a real story being told. It's just sort of like, here's a couple of days in the life of this older woman. Uh, this divorcee. Uh, and it's... 
Yeah, you know, it's got a, like I mentioned, it's got a solid cast. The filmmaking is actually really solid. Uh, Lelio is great with, um, uh, light, with, with the kind of lighting he uses and the shot, uh, composition. So the filmmaking is good. There's just nothing to watch here. It's just kind of, just kind of, and especially by the second half when you begin to realize there's nothing really going on here. Uh, it definitely drags its feet towards, you know, into the ending. Uh, I don't know if the idea is the original is any good, but this movie, I can't, this is my unpopped kernel of the week, not only by default, but just because I don't think, I can't actually recommend you go see it. Just because even though I love Julianne Moore and I think she's phenomenal in this movie, there's just nothing, it, it, it literally is just... The shot, the scenes don't really have a co- coherent sort of narrative arc to them. It's more just like, it's like almost like diary entries being reenacted. You know, it's just like, here's things that happened and then they don't really amount to anything. Like even, and once again, you have these great actors. Sean Astin is literally in like one scene. Well, you know, one sequence. And then he's gone. He's never, you barely even see him you barely even see his face in the movie, and yet he's like one of the highest billed names on the on the poster and on the and in the trailer because they know Sean Astin will get recognition, but he's barely in the movie. You would you blink and you would miss Sean Astin in this movie, and the people surround you know like Brad Garrett, Brad Garrett in the scene with in the scenes where he's with Julianne Moore, they're great. Uh, John Turturro is a good actor, and as him playing this sort of nebbish, not sure what he wants kind of guy uh, who feels a bit, you know, who kind of gets hot and cold feet. He's sort of this loser by all accounts. That would be interesting, but it doesn't. Once again, it doesn't amount to anything. And I think the problem is it just it's it's played so close to the vest. It doesn't feel like there's any real personality for the idea of. Uh, Julianne Moore's character being a free spirit, it feels very, like, boring. You know, I feel like a free spirit would be more whimsical or, you know, interesting. And here it's just kind of like, it's almost like a, like a, like like one of those live vloggers, the people who just vi- video their lives, uh, their daily lives. That's kind of what we get here with only a certain other set pieces that are that go beyond that but otherwise it's just kind of like mundane and like once again stories about the mundane can be good because that's what you know good story like um a24 one of their other movies uh both ladybird and mid-90s they were stories about fairly mundane stuff as well but there was a narrative there. There was art. There were story arcs. There were you know there were compelling characters that had that had their own motivations and interests and were well rounded. And here there's none of that. It feels very, and it may be come down to just the fact that Lelio is not as more uh, accustomed to filming in Spanish and filming in Chile. So maybe doing a Hollywood production was a bit much for him, even if it's like an independent production. But I'm not sure how, since it's his first one, it may be him trying to get his footing. He may, uh, he may not have been, especially since he co-wrote the screenplay with somebody. Who, who's the other writer on this? 
Alice Johnson. Oh, no. He didn't. I don't think he wrote it all. I think he just wrote the uh, original screenplay. I think the. Alice Johnson Bower, born in Columbus, Georgia. Um, this is her. This is the only thing she's known for. Everything uh, that actress. Oh. Okay, yeah, she's only had two movies. One where she was co-written, this one where she adapted it. Um, well, her last movie was A Portrait of Female Desperation. A questionably talented documentary filmmaker hopes to save her failed career by turning her camera on the all-time low point of her longtime roommate. Ondine uh, Rary, uh, or however you pronounce that. Um, and she was the star in it. So that was like her her film sort of thing, where she co-wrote and co-directed it. And starred in it. And then here, she somehow ended up adapting the screenplay for this guy. I don't know how she got that gig. Why her? Uh, but she's like a stand-up. And, you know, she's not a... You know, she's a theater. She studied theater. She was a stand-up. Uh, she does performance... You know, she does performance work on, on stage. And she is, you know, she has an MFA for, for writing uh screenplay and teleplays so it's not like she's untalented but i don't know but like she's only had two credits to her name and one was her like her film the one that she made and i have no idea how good that is so i don't know how she ended up writing the adaptation for this but i feel like i just i, I feel like it they needed something more to it. They needed to tell a, a different story. Whereas I kind of feel like this may be just a shot for shot remake of sorts. It's kind of like what uh, cold, that may be another topic I want to, I'll cover at some point uh, where Amer you know, covering American remakes of foreign films, because this year we've had three so far, I think three major ones, uh, the upside, which is a remake of a French movie, Cold Pursuit, which is a remake of a, Nor a Norwegian movie, and now this was a remake of a Chilean movie. So I think the next one that comes around, which is an American remake of a foreign... And two of the ones have been re remade by, their, by the same director coming over, which is interesting, too. I'm curious how often that is. But, yeah, it's all, this ultimately doesn't really amount to anything, sadly. So I don't know if the original is any better, but this I can't exactly recommend to go see at all. Uh, so that's those are the big releases that came out this weekend and uh yeah so we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with a discussion about trailers hello everyone and welcome i'm melody i'm max i'm dexter i'm diana and i'm john and together we host the book review and discussion podcast living in the stacks every two weeks we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it we'll talk about what we liked what we didn't like and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us living in the stacks. Available through Gumby Cat Networks. talked about this too much i didn't see it in my list of topic discussions for this for the last three years so i may have talked about it in like some detail before but i think i should break down sort of 
the art of good trailer making. And I think that what it comes down to is that a trailer is a commercial for a movie. It's a it's a way to tell sell people to go see a movie. And it actually started in a weird place. I looked up the history of trailers to kind of get a, a better understanding of what led up to where we are now. And the first trailer was actually shown in the, in movie theaters for a stage production. It was very very odd to learn that but it was like this whole innovative idea of like moving pictures are the new thing and it's like 1914 so it's like moving pictures are are getting some pretty hot buzz so if we want to sell this new broadway show we should make we should film our our production and tell people in theaters hey you should go check this show out and it kind of worked and it was and people were like oh my god that's amazing and then next person like the first real person to to pick it up was charlie chaplin who was like using that to sell his upcoming uh, movies in production. And the whole reason they're called trailers is because they followed the feature. They were, they trailed the feature. So they were the, they were the sort of, they were sort of the coming attract. They were sort of like, Hey, here's more, here's new movies coming up. You like that movie? Here's more movies coming up. And then eventually they, uh, and then that was how it was for the most part. Um, and then up to the 50s, if you watch an old trailer from like the 50s and the, and the 40s, it's always the same guy like, come and see in amazement the new the new feature picture starring da 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 And it's like some weird narration of just basically breaking down the entire movie. And it's mostly text, not a lot of film footage. In fact, you, in fact, most of those are just basically text with narration telling you to go see the new movie rather than just showing you clips from the movie and those literally you know you think trailers give away too much now they those literally explained all the moments from the movie that's how it was throughout the fifth throughout the first half of the 20th century and it took guys like Kubrick to really innovate what trailers could do as a medium and he was the first one to be like we're not doing that hokey garbage I want to sell an experience and so he started selling his movies based on the mo- montages of clips from the movie. So he was the first real director of note to just be like, let's not try to, let's not try to be like a salesman. Let's just show people what we've got. And that's sort of, and then everyone sort of picked up the ball from there. And that's kind of how we get trailers the way we know them now. And, you know, there've been big, then of course, uh, 1975, uh, Jaws actually had an iconic trailer to build up the hype, which led to the blockbusters, as we know. So the first real blockbuster trailer was probably Jaws, and it didn't show much of anything. And uh, and then the trailers didn't start playing before movies as previews and coming attractions until the advent of multiplexes in the 70s. And as, And then as time has gone on and multiplexes have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger... And the industry has gotten mass bigger and more corporate. It, that's when we see the rise of like two or three trailers before a movie to like twenty solid minutes of trailers before a movie. And yeah, so I, I think that all stems from the corporatization of Hollywood and the need to continually sell more and more stuff. Uh, but yeah, uh, trailer making as we know it kind of started with Kubrick. And 
some of the most iconic trailers don't really show much of anything. Psycho was just uh, Alfred Hitchcock pitching you his movie, and then it ends on the iconic shower, uh, uh, ends on a shot from the shower scene. And Alien was just the letters in space, but it created a mood. Jaws was also like just the score and the shots underwater. It didn't. It, it it hinted at the horror to come, and then as time went on, you get things like the Roland Emmerich movies from the Independence Day and Godzilla '98. They hyped you up on this movie, even though the movie itself wasn't any good. But it hyped you up on the experience. And Independence Day, most people got what they wanted. Godzilla '98, they got so they sorely did not get what they wanted. Uh, then you get things like Lilo and Stitch, where you didn't see any clips from the movie. It was all hype for this character of Stitch as he crosses over with the rest of the Disney canon. Like the Disney, all these these iconic Disney Renaissance characters are crossing over with this little blue alien, and so you're like, and then you hear the common line through the throughout the trailers are "Get your own movie," and it's like, what what? And then it's like Lilo and Stitch. He gets his own movie, and you're like, "Wait, who's this blue alien? What new movie? What is going on?" And then you and then you get to see the movie, and it's a really touching story about you know Ohana and family and making your own family where it is, and the struggle and you know struggling through adversity, and it's it's really touching, and it's really good. Lilo and Stitch is a good movie, guys. Uh, then you get things like Guardians of the Galaxy, which are all all about the. You know, the, 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 once again, the feeling of the movie, the aesthetic of the movie. And so you've got these, this sort of old school retro music vibe set against space fantasy. And it's, and so trailer making, as we know it, has sort of become its own art form with various ups and downs like Don LaFontaine uh, and the voiceovers throughout the 80s and 90s uh, kind of fell out of style as they, as basically trailers became short films. Trailers essentially became short films with their own arcs to sell people the movie. And so here's a short film to sell you on a bit on a, on a feature film. And unfortunately, that also means that there have been really bad and misleading trailers, which kind of leads me, which kind of where Gloria Bell comes in. Uh, Us shows you scenes from the movie. Maybe some of the scenes didn't make it into the final cut because that'll happen a lot. Scenes that are shown in the trailer never make it to the final cut because they're made mid-production and often mid-post-production as they're editing. So, like, there's the joke in Deadpool 2 about how Cable's... uh, CG isn't is halfway done and he's like whoa 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 wait what's up with that no 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 we're gonna wait for the CG to finish rendering and then we're gonna show you the trailer (laughs) so I mean if you know anything about trailers uh and once again Deadpool 2 it was hyped up with uh before Wolverine uh uh, Logan with something that that with it's with a short film that featured just Deadpool Failing to save a guy and then eating his ice cream. So good trailers don't have to even show clips from the movie. They just have to sell you on the idea of the movie. That's why the Deadpool team know exactly how to market their movie. Because they're using things. They used used a Bob Ross reference to sell you on Deadpool 2. And people loved it. Because it it didn't even need to show you clips from the movie. 
you just got exactly what you wanted. Deadpool. It's a short film, it's a comedy sketch, but it's selling you the movie. So stuff like that is 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 something you don't see a lot of. So when when film studios do it, it's it stands out. Uh but yeah, with us, it I still love that trailer. I think it's a phenomenal trailer, and it captures exactly what you'll get out of the movie, which is uh you know, seemingly unassuming family goes on vacation, and and then that night they are uh, attacked by copies of themselves, and then it never gives away anything else. It just has shots of the weirdness that's going on. The 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 rabbits. I forgot. It, I didn't even mention the rabbits in my review. Uh, but the rabbits though, they're just kind of like there as visual scenery. Uh, they're kind of explained as like a sort of um food source for the tethered uh but they don't really uh the tethered being uh if you if you didn't if you skipped uh past my spoiler talk being the name for the doppelgangers uh that's not giving too much away uh but at the same point like the the rabbits don't really have an explanation for being there they're just kind of there for that visual aesthetic of like cages upon cages of rabbits and then these weird people walking around in this underground tunnel and these these people running away from their doppelgangers and it's it's all set to this just tense tight string music that's also tied into I've got 5 on it. I would not be surprised if the if the streaming uh, residuals for that uh just just skyrocketed after this movie because yeah, it is it is it is I mean, number 1 it's a great song. Number 2 uh, the way it's used in this movie, it's so good. Uh, the fact that they carry, it's carried over, it's used in the trailer, so you think, it's probably just do something for the trailer. No, it's carried over into the movie. You know, that doesn't always happen, but, but yeah, that was a nice touch. Meanwhile, uh, Gloria by, um, that, that song Gloria does feature in Gloria Bell, but only at the very end. It's not a major motif throughout the movie like uh i've got five on it was uh for the most part for us and the trailer sold us on it being upbeat and quirky and weird and in like sort of like an like an indie rom-com and that i feel is was misleading because it's much more downbeat and much more sort of that there isn't a whole lot of uh, orchestral music or scoring going on. It's all mostly quiet. The most of the music comes from radios and and that sort of thing. There's not. It's very. It's not a very. It's a very downbeat movie, and it's not. There's not a lot to it. But the trailer sold us a much more, much much more of like an indie rom com than an actual than what we than what we actually got. So I felt like I was not sold a, a, the bill of goods I was promised. By the trailer, and I think that's kind of what leads me into some of the mo worst, most egregious. Because Gloria Bell was a bit misleading. These were tra these are infamous trailers that completely misled audiences. One of the worst ones and most infamous being Kangaroo Jack. If you were a if you were a kid in the '90s and you saw that movie uh, advertised, you thought, "Oh, it's gonna be a fun, wacky talking animal movie." And instead, it's a really stupid gangster movie. It's a and there's only one scene of the animal talking, 
But that one scene was their entire marketing push and became the impetus for, yes, the actual animated direct-to-video sequel. Hollywood is weird, you guys. Hollywood is weird. Uh, another one that was that a lot of people were, thought was thought was misleading, but is much more in line with like uh, Lilo and Stitch and whatnot was Frozen. The initial trailers for Frozen were of Olaf and Sven. I think Sven. I think uh, I think the reindeer's name name is Sven. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I haven't seen Frozen in forever since it like first came out. Um, but yeah, it's just the snowman and the reindeer, and you think it's going to be a wacky buddy comedy or sort of thing, and then it turns out to be basically the Ice Queen, uh, the Snow Queen, uh, but as a Disney movie, not directly, obviously, but like that impetus, that setting, that ma- that original story has served as the springboard to what led to Frozen. Which, you could make a movie, prob- you could make a whole documentary about the, the, the process it took Disney to go from their initial uh, idea for the Snow Queen adaptation all the way up to it getting made with Frozen. And uh, meanwhile, I think the, the recent teaser for Frozen 2 does a much better job selling that movie than the original teasers for Frozen did at selling their movie. Because people thought it was going to be some quirky comedy about this talking snowman and a reindeer. And meanwhile, those were just the side characters. And meanwhile, Frozen 2 is kind of... It's much more cinematic. It's much more pushing the drama. And 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 it also showcases the characters that the that the... People uh, know by now. So rather than showing like a skit with Anna and Elsa, maybe, or, um, or, uh, what, what was, what was the love interest name? Whatever the love interest name from, uh, um, Frozen was, the blonde dude. Uh, yeah, whoever these guys are, whoever... Maybe he was Sven. I I, it, I haven't seen Frozen forever. I I it never really hooked me. Um, but yeah, the, the Frozen Two is all about them, and it's showing like all these cool cinematic moments. Like it opens with uh, Elsa trying to use her ice powers to uh, run across the ocean and fight off fire, and uh, you know you get to see the characters being all interesting badass. And all this beautiful landscape. It's like okay. I thought Frozen 2 was going to be a hack job and a cop-out, but if it's like this, I'm in. Because that looks in- that looks interesting. Uh, so yeah, Frozen 1 had this weird marketing push. and it, I, I get what they were trying to go for. They were trying to th- I think they were trying to go for like a Lilo and Stitch style, like don't show clips from the actual movie, just sell them on this, on, on this interesting trailer. But I think by not, by, I think by focusing on the side, like Stitch, Lilo, the Lilo and Stitch trailer is focused on Stitch, one of the main characters in the movie. Olaf and the reindeer are side characters. So why were they the focus of the marketing? Be- probably because, you know, kids, you know, hey kids, here's these goofy sidekick characters. And then actually the kids were more interested <laughs> in uh, the princesses and, the, and, and Queen Elsa. Of course they were, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, th- 
And uh, this one kind of gotten forgotten, has been forgotten, but uh, Red Eye, uh, Wes Craven's Red Eye, was sold as sort of a supernatural horror movie. And it turns out it was just like Die Hard. <laughs> it was just an action thriller. And like, but there was like an infamous trailer where they gave Killian Murphy red, uh, digitally altered red eyes. And that never that never showed up. And I think it's because whoever did the marketing thought, Wes Craven's a horror guy. We need to make it look like a horror movie. So his fans know that to come see it. But it's not a horror movie. But we need to sell them that because then we get more people to see it. And then as soon as word got out that that was not the case, then everyone turned against it. That's the whole problem with selling, with, with a bad marketing push, is that a bad... Bad marketing will immediately if you, once once you get called out on it will immediately come back to bite you. Uh, a more recent one uh, that people that for a movie I liked, but a lot of people felt they were sh- uh, shafted on was it comes at night. The actual movie is sort of a disease post apocalyptic uh, character study. It deals with trying to survive after this plague has happened. But the trailer made it seem more like a zombie apocalypse movie. And that there was this big motif of this red door and things breaking through it. And I feel like, and I feel like, yeah, if you were sold sort of like The Walking Dead or something like that. Because of a one shot, once again, much like with Kangaroo Jack. Is one shot of a zombie in a dream sequence. And that was the marketing push for them. But the movie is all about character study. It's all about the post-apocalyptic drama of survival. It's a survival story more than anything else. And I th- that's why I liked it because I like those kinds of stories. But if you were sold a zombie apocalypse action horror movie, then you did not get what you came for. So yeah, I can I absolutely uh, acknowledge. Even though I liked it comes at night for what it was, if you were if you were sold on the marketing and 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 you didn't get what you wanted, then yeah, that's on the marketers. Uh, continuing on that line, you've got Alien Three, which promised the Xenomorphs coming to Earth early on, and then it just turns out nah, that's that's not even what happened. Alien Three was a debacle on all grounds. Just because they had, it was such a, it was just a, a garbage show, a garbage fire behind the scenes. But um, yeah, that whole marketing push of like, oh, the Xenomorphs are coming to Earth now, and that didn't happen until the really stupid Alien versus Predator crossovers, which had the, which completely had to do its own continuity, of course, because it completely because ret- if it's in the same continuity, it completely retconned the Alien franchise. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, uh, another one that's not as major, but was, was something I saw a lot when it came to misleading trailers was Sweeney Todd. It was sold as a horror, you know, it wasn't, I think the one thing it left out, I feel like there was no reason to leave it out, was that it was based on a musical. It was an adaptation of a Sondheim musical. A really good Sondheim musical. I got to play in a production of it as uh, Beetle ba- as Beetle Bard, uh, and uh, yeah, it's a phenomenal show to be a part of and to witness. 
and uh, and the movie itself is not is not a, not that bad of an adaptation. I think the only problem is Johnny Depp can't sing worth a crap. Uh, but the but Tim Burton knew exactly how to shoot the movie for the most part. I just feel like you know it could have been better. It could have been a better adaptation and captured more because even the adaptation didn't capture the true sort of macabre humor of the original. It's played much more straight and uh, non-comedic, whereas the musical is very tongue-in-cheek. It's a twisted, dark comedy. And the and the movie only captures a, a hint of that, sadly. It's much more straightforward, sad. Uh, and I feel like you could have gone with a much more, you know, theatrical approach, ultimately. Uh, but I love the movie, and then that got me to love the th- stage show, and that's what got me to kind of fall a little out of love with the movie, just because the the, the original's better. <laughs> the stage show's better, uh, you know. Uh, this one was interesting. Drive, the uh, 2009 uh, Ryan Gosling movie, was actually the first, the only instance of this, of a misleading trailer I found that led to a lawsuit. A woman filed a lawsuit against the filmmakers or against the studio for the for for misleading her with the trailer. It was thrown out. It was found frivolous, I believe. But there was the only instance of a tra- of a trailer selling you on um selling you on a movie that didn't exist. And for this case, it sold Drive as a Fast and Furious sort of racing movie when it's much more of an introspective character study of this character, of this uh, of Ryan Gosling and this sort of hitman. It's, yeah, that's, it's bad marketing, but that was the only real major incidence of note that I, that I could find of, um, of a trailer leading to a lawsuit for misleading uh, advertising. Um, I'm gonna run through these real quick. Uh, other ones I've uh, other ones I found of note were Observant Report was sold as a Paul Blart knockoff when it's much more heinous than that. It's a really dark, dark comedy. Like we're talking like instance of sexual assault, dark. So this was a really so to sell it as like a wacky, wacky mall cop movie like Paul Blart was was the wrong thing to make because you don't want the Paul Blart audience coming in and seeing sexual assault happen on screen. Yeah, that's, that's not, that is, that is not what you, that is not a good time. That is, in fact, that's, a st- that is still debatable of even if it needed to be in the movie itself. Like, yeah, seeds of sexual assault and uh, rape are, yeah, even when you're trying to play them as, as sympathetic to the victim, there, it's always going to be debatable how necessary they are to your story and how much of it is exploitative. Because so much of that sexual assault and rape has been played for exploitation that to include it in your movie alt does feel have a hint of exploitation to it. Especially if you don't play it seriously. Uh Annapolis was sold as a Top Gun sort of uh, an officer and a gentleman sort of military uh, naval movie. It's about boxing. There's never any hint of boxing in the trailers. It's a boxing movie, but they sold it on the on the military stuff for some reason. And one that I one of my favorite books that Disney completely bungled was Bridge to Terabithia. 
You may not remember the adaptation. It came out in 2006, 2007. I was working at uh, Hollywood Video at the time of its, of its uh, home release. I remember that. And I remember hearing about the adaptation and seeing this whole fantasy CGI fest going on. And it looked exactly like a Narnia movie. And I'm like, I don't remember any of that from the book. And I was right, because none of that was in the book. That was all stuff to make it more visually compelling and much more of a fantasy movie when it's in when in actuality it's just a character movie. It is just these two kids. And Anna Sophia Robb was not a bad choice to play the the girl in this movie. She's a great choice in it. But I believe that was who it was. Was it Anna Sophia Robb? Who was the girl in Bridge to Terabithia? I like the kids weren't bad, and even the kid playing um, Josh. Oh my God, that was Josh Hutcherson. Little baby Peta was the main kid. Uh, Jess Aaron's, I think he did well. Zoe Deschanel does a, a decent job as Miss Edmonds, from what I remember. Uh, but yeah, Anna Sophia Robb played Leslie Burke, uh, the 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 friend of his, uh, and oh, I did not realize it was made by Gabor Shupo. Uh, 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 half of art, uh, you know, the, the half of Klasky Shupo animation from the nineties. I did not realize he directed that. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, um, yeah, it's a family drama movie and they, and the marketing, cause there was a big push after Harry Potter to make the next big thing. Disney started with Narnia and when Narnia wasn't doing as well as it, I think I think this may have been, no, this was just two years after Narnia. Uh, they d- decided to do Bridge to Terabithia as well. And they pr- sold it like Narnia. When in actuality, it's much more like another adaptation they did, Tuck Everlasting. Which I hear good things about the book, but I hear also the movie is not very good at, 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 at adapting the book. So Disney has a history... All the way up till this past, till last year with a wrinkle in time, with bungling uh, beloved children's literature, <laughs> they really have a hard time bringing cl- classic literature to the screen. Uh, I guess you could say that with all of Hollywood, too. It's not a Disney problem, but Disney is very notorious for it at this point. Because they did so much of it. They did Alexander in a terrible, horrible, no good, very, very bad day. It looked nothing like the book. That was... That was my childhood. You came for Disney. How dare you? Anyway, um, so yeah, those were some of the more I- infamous uh, uh, misleading trailers. And if you have some of your own that you want to mention, uh, send those to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com or even some good trailers. Because I mentioned Psycho, Alien, Jaws, um, Lilo and Stitch, Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, it, finding the best trailers is hard. Because, especially of all time, because so much of them, so much of the search results will return with current trailers. So I'm trying to figure out the best trailers in all of, in the last 20th century, in the last 100 years, was a a lot harder, sadly. So if you have, if you remember like an an iconic trailer to your childhood or to your adulthood even, uh, send those to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com as well. But uh, when it comes to making a good trailer, the fine line to, to, to straddle is accurately represent your movie while also not giving too much away. 
you want to act the problem with so many of the other of those misleading trailer trailers I mentioned is that they didn't accurately represent the movie being that they were selling. It was a misle you know, it was misleading. It was not 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 it did not represent the what was being so what was being sold. Us, meanwhile, absolutely represented what it was being sold. And what us also did was not give away major plot details, major twists, anything like that. At least not. I mean, once you've seen the movie, you can kind of see some of the scenes where uh, you were like, "Oh, that's where that was," and it gets into the. It gets like just barely twist territory, but it's not something you would be able to tell from the plot as a twist. It's something that you only learn uh, as the movie goes along. But uh, Guardians of the Galaxy didn't mention anything about Ronan the Accuser or Thanos or the Infinity Stone. It sold you on this gang of misfits. And, uh, you know, um, like I think Shazam has got good marketing. I'm going to see that next week, uh, next weekend uh, after the, uh, for April. That'll be the one of the first releases for April. And I think that has solid marketing because it's selling you on a fun kids sort of superhero movie. It's a superhero movie for kids, which makes sense. Billy Batson is a kid. So selling him on this kid turning into a superhero is it it works. Um, It's going to be hard to maintain that as a long term franchise just because you'd continually have to be recasting Billy Batson. Ah, uh, so many times you'd have to recast Billy Bat. He'd be he'd be like Russ Griswold in the Vacation franchise. He'd continually have to be recast because each actor continually outgrows the role. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh boy, yeah, poor Billy is perpetually a preteen. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh man. Uh, but yeah, you need to accurately represent the movie, but not give too much away. One of the biggest gripes against trailers is you've seen once you've seen the trailer, you've seen the movie. Like perfect example, uh, Breakthrough is coming out later in April, uh, around um, around the around like the weekend before uh, Endgame comes out, and I've seen that trailer enough times that I've entire unless something. Unless they're hiding something, I've entirely seen the the movie. There is no reason for me to see the movie. There would be no reason to, for me to see the movie. The trailer played at everything. And I think that's the problem with making your movie follow an arc. Making it like a mini movie. In that it, because if you tie it too close to the actual movie, there would be no reason for people to see it because they've already seen the trailer. And if it's anything like the trailer... Then they don't need. Then why would they pay ten bucks uh, just to get in the door to see the movie? And that's why, like, there's a big problem with trailer houses uh, not quite knowing how to sell, not quite nailing good trailer making. So many trailers are completely forgettable. And I think there's another one that just premiered, Door of the Explorer. If that accurately represents the movie. Because they're 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 leaving out uh, uh, 
Danny, who Danny Trejo and Benicio Del Toro play. And if you look into the IMDb, they're playing Boots the Monkey and Swiper the Fox. And the movie that Disney is, that Nickelodeon is making is basically a Jumanji ripoff. It is a straight up Jumanji ripoff. That is exactly what this Dora the Explorer movie is. It's a Jumanji ripoff with a slight, with a small tangent to a high school comedy. That's it. Also, apparently, Diego is being played by a by one of Wal, one of the Wahlberg clan. So they were able to get Michael Pena, Ava Longoria, Isabella Moner, uh, Benicio del Toro, Danny Trejo, uh, Eugenio Derbez, all of these uh, Latinx and Hispanic actors, and for Diego, who is just as iconic to the fans of the show as Dora, as her cousin, he gets his own spinoff shows and DVDs because he got so popular. He's played by a goddamn Wahlberg. You couldn't find one more Hispanic or Latinx actor to play Diego? You had to go with a Wahlberg? <laughs> uh, so that's going to be fun to talk about. That's going to be real fun to talk about. But it, if it's accurately representing the movie, then it's just selling a bad movie. <laughs> it's just selling a terrible, terrible movie that nobody wanted. Like, if you're going to make a Door of the Explorer movie, wouldn't you make it like an animated movie? Make it like an animated adventure movie, like the My Little Pony movie was? Not this weird, Dora's grown up now, and she's like a teenager going to high school. Like, why? Why do that? Isn't it just about, just have her going exploring and having an adventure, and it's Indiana Jones, and it tries to do that. But it's also this weird side tangent where she has to go to high school for no reason. Why? Why can't Diego just be an adventurer too? Why is this high school? What? What is? Why is this movie? Anyway, that's gonna, probably going to end up on being one of my wor- least favorite of the 2019. Just because if it's anything like that trailer, it's going to be awful. So yeah. Uh, the goal of your trailer should be to sell your movie accurately... Well, also, uh, not giving away too much details of the plot. Like, I think the Endgame trailers have been good about not giving away too much. It's just, a lot of them have actually been relying on nostalgia. Because it's been 10 years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they're relying heavily on the nostalgia of these characters that we've grown to love. And how this is an end, this, this is the end of a chapter. This is an end. This is an entire end of the ch- end chapter in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's it's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward. But they aren't giving away too much about Thanos or the act or the or the plot or how they plan to reboot or you know undo what Thanos did in an in Infinity War and it. It's it's keeping itself close to the vest. It's showing you cool shots and it's relying mainly on the nostalgia. Especially for Iron Man and Captain America because, meta, you know, metatextually, Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans are looking for ways out, as is Chris Hemsworth, I believe. So I think they're looking at maybe finally retiring the initial uh, Marvel, Marvel Avengers Um uh, as of as for right now, and then maybe give it to the next generation of the Avengers, where uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is going to lead it as Doctor Strange, with Spider Man as sort of Spider Man and Ant Man, uh, sort of like 
the Hawkeyes, you know, the sort of side character, you know, the, the not as, you know, Ant-Man's probably going to be the Hawkeye unless Jeremy Renner decides to stay on. Uh, you've got Black Panther as sort of the Captain America. Um, and they're probably going, and as they introduce like the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and more of the Marvel Cinematic Universe into the fold, then we can start to really, then we can start to really explore stuff. But I think the biggest letdown, all this is side tangent. I think the biggest letdown is that Ike Perlmutter was in charge of the TV side of things when Kevin Feige should have just been in charge of the whole damn thing. TV, movies, everything. He should have had. He should have been the one to steer the ship. But Ike Perlmutter screwed it up for everybody. Hate that libertarian douchebag, money grubbing piece of gr- human garbage. He's he's a He's an absolute garbage human being. I think just everything you hear about Ike Perlmutter makes you wish the dude would just die, do us all a favor and die. Uh, Anyway, um, so yeah, uh, yeah, good trailers. uh, No, not to give too much away while also accurately representing the movie. And bad trailers either are selling bad, accurately represent bad movies, uh, actively mislead the audience on what the movie's about, or they give too much away. So the 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 ideal, the and we're seeing better and better trailers come out as more people who get start making the trailers are people who grew up watching the trailers. So they're like, I know what not to do because you y'all screwed up. So I know what not to do thanks to that. And I think we're gonna start seeing a rise in better and better trailers as as time goes on. So that about that does it for the discussion portion. So let's get into the other two segments. First up with the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. All right. Looking at the top uh, top seven this week, we've got a couple of dropouts. Captive State dropped dropped hard. 70% drop. Uh, after gaining in one theater, it got added to another theater and then just, just, just dropped like a rock. Ugh, that's, that's, that sucks. Uh, and No Manches Frida dropped out of the top seven, but it's still firmly in the top ten, so good for it. Uh, it's interesting to, it is interesting to see a foreign language film in the top ten, uh, at, in America at this point in time. But, uh, right now the top seven is Gloria Bell, which jumped up from 18, Due to the uh... okay, there it is. That, that was weird. Uh, due to the uh, increase in theaters, it uh, doubled its. It, it added. It was in like a couple of theaters before, and now it's in like six hundred. Now it was in a uh, four. Yeah, forty uh, thirty nine before, and now it's in six hundred and fifty four. So it may it brought in one point eight million dollars this weekend. Bringing its total gross uh, domestically to 2.4 million, and its current worldwide gross at 3 million dollars. Um, let's take a look at that wiki. Let me pull up the wiki page to see if they have a budget listed. Nope. No budget listed, but given it's uh, A24, it's probably no more than $20 million. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's on the low side, just because I know A24 hasn't exactly had some real bangers 
and it definitely needs to start get some more hits coming in, uh, like Ladybird. Not even just Ladybird success, but just more people seeing their movies, uh, or else I don't know how how well they can sustain their uh, studio. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Tyler Perry's The Medea Family Funeral dropping from five to six, bringing in four point five million dollars, bringing its domestic gross to sixty five point eight million dollars, and its worldwide gross up to sixty six million. It costs like twenty five million to make, so yeah, it's doing just fine. Uh, in terms of the Medea series, is actually number three right now, behind Boo and Medea Halloween, and Tyler Perry's Medea Goes to Jail being the highest grossing on uh, unadjusted. For inflation, adjusted for inflation. Uh, okay, yeah, it's still the highest grossing for adjust, adjusting for inflation, followed by family reunion, witness protection, and witness protection. Um, adjusting for inflation, uh, family funeral is number six behind Diary of a Mad Black Woman. So yeah, Medea goes to jail was the highest, was probably the peak of the Medea of Medea. Although boom, a Medea Halloween was weirdly successful. $73 million unadjusted for inflation. $75 adjusted for inflation for that one. That was so weird. Anyway, uh, next up, uh, we've got How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Bringing in $6.5 million this weekend. Bringing its domestic gross up to $145.7 million. And its worldwide gross up to $488 million. Nearly half a billion dollars. And all, all, pretty much its entire budget made back in, in the in the U.S. alone. So yeah, good for hidden, good for How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, we'll see where, how it lands uh, in the entire trilogy uh, by the end of its run. But it's doing good, still doing good stuff. Uh, number three, number number four is last week's number three. Uh, five Feet Apart brought in $8.7 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $26.4 million, $26 million, and its worldwide gross up to $32.7 million, and it costs like $5 million to make or $10 million to make, so runaway success for a really, really bad movie. Number three is Wonder Park, which brought in $9 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $29.4 million, and its worldwide gross up to $39.6 million. Nowhere near, not even half of its budget back yet. So this is, we'll see how it ends up in the long run. But I, I'm guessing this is going to be one of Paramount's and Nickelodeon's biggest flops. Uh, next up, Captain Marvel dropped from the number one spot to number two with $35 million this weekend. Bringing its domestic gross up to $321.4 million. And its worldwide gross so far to $910 million. It's about to cross over that billion dollar threshold. Probably one, one, or, one, one or two more weekends. And it's going to be hitting that, hit, it's going to be crossing that, uh, that billion dollar threshold. So good for Captain Marvel. People, people were itching for this movie and it's doing gangbuster so far. And then finally, premiering at number one, not surprisingly, is Jordan Peele's Us, which brought in $70.2 million this, its opening weekend, and it, domestically. And worldwide, it brought in $86.9 million on a $20 million budget. This is one of the, this is, this is probably one of the best openings for a horror movie. Like, it's, it's number 10 Opening weekends of March of all time. Uh, 
horror R-rated opening. It well longest. Let's see about opening. The third, the third highest opening for an R-rated horror movie of all time. Right behind Halloween 2018 and uh, It from 2017. That is not accounting for inflation, though. So I don't know what it is accounting for inflation, but unadjusted for inflation, uh, Us premiered, had the third highest opening for a horror, for an R-rated horror movie of all time. Just domestically. So it really, yeah, it, it's doing gangbusters. People just went out to see this movie. They wanted this movie, and and since it didn't cost too much to make, it it did it it made it to be profitable its opening weekend. So so that's that's good to see. That's good to see. Alrighty, and I and I hear people like I'm hearing I'm hearing people seeing it again the opening weekend. So we'll see what it's like long term if they continue to keep this propped up in the top 10 how long it's going to stay in there uh yeah us is good us is good pick of the week number one movie of the week so good for good for jordan peele at nothing but success for the dude he deserves it so that was the week that was and now we look to the week ahead in trailer talk coming this summer It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. There's only one real confirmed new release for this weekend that I could find. I'll have to see what else I can uh, can uh, will be able to see. Uh, but for right now, the biggest release for this coming weekend is Disney's Dumbo live action remake. So I managed to find some tra- from screen some screenings for listed for. Uh, some other uh, movies in my area, but we'll see what ha- We'll see about uh, what is actually what gets a. What, we'll see about the finalized um, release schedule for next week because unfortunately that doesn't usually come out till like Tuesday. So for right now, the Dumbo's the biggest release coming out next weekend, and then I'll talk about the other two. First, so first up, let's take a look at the official trailer for Disney's live action Dumbo. Relying heavily on that, on that baby mine. Yep. Yeah, I'm not into these kids. We're all family here, no matter how small. There's the crow feather. From the imagination of Tim Burton. You have something very rare. You have wonder. Michael Keaton. You have mystique. You have magic. Danny DeVito. Yeah, these kids are not good actors. Colin Farrell. 
Tim Burton has never been good at directing kids, it looks like. On March 29th. So it looks like they're doing the uh, pink elephant sequence with bubbles. When all seems lost. Find your courage. Dreamland. Yeah, I'm just... I don't know. I was never a bit big on Dumble to begin with. Just because I don't think it's one of... Dis like, it's one of Disney's more iconic movies. But at the same time, I don't think it's one of Disney's best. I think it's a bit overrated. I think, like, slightly overrated. But I think people rate it well. It's just kind of, like, ultimately forgettable. Except for the weirdly racist bits. Not, I mean, people think about the crows, but they don't think about the black, almost chain gang of workers who set up the circus in the dark in the rain. Like, most of those guys are sort of depicted as black laborers. So, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff about that movie that doesn't hold up. So, I get why they try to remake it in more family-friendly terms, but... I don't know. Tim Burton's not selling me on it uh, for this one. So we'll see about the final product. Maybe it's just bad trailer editing and whatnot. So whatever. Uh, so the next one I could find was the latest from Harmony Corrine. Yeah, the guy who made Spring Breakers and Trash Humpers. Not mentioned in the trailer marketing. How can you not mention the pinnacle of Harmony Corrine's filmography? Trash Humpers. Shout out to Kyle Colgren, <laughs> who introduced me to Trash Humpers. I'm, I'm going to full, fully admit to that. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. The kind of crap that he re reviewed back in the day. Anyway, um, yeah, Harmony Korean's got a new movie out through uh, Neon, the uh, the new competitor for A24, uh, with Matthew McConaughey. It's called The Beach Bum. Let's take a look. Give me a uh, Lucky Lotto and a cigar, would you? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just basically Matthew McConaughey essentially playing how people perceive him to be. Vice Studios. Next year. Snoop Dogg's in this. From Harmony Kareem, the Mina Bracha Spring Breakers. Matthew McConaughey, Snoop Dogg, Isla Fisher, Stephanie, something, Jimmy Buffett, with Zac Efron and Martin Lawrence. The Beach Bum. Vice Studios throws me off there. Also, Jimmy Buffett's in this? In an R-rated sort of drug-fueled something or another? And then Zac Efron gets a featuring credit. Didn't, this is some weird stuff going on. You'd think Zac Efron would be right after Matthew McConaughey, but he gets one of the featuring credits, which usually goes to like, um, goes to like, uh, uh, 
like my, Martin Lawrence, he's he sort of uh, like a legacy actors. Like with with uh, with this actor that you know, he gets the feature. They get the feature credit as sort of like the big name after the top build. So uh, that's going to be interesting. I think that's going to be playing near me. I found a, a t- uh, Showtime's already. So we'll see how wide rele- of a release it gets. But the one I'm seeing more besides Dumbo, more for besides uh, Dumbo, is the latest from Pure Flix Entertainment. The biopic of Abby Johnson. Unplanned. Ah, uh, fun. Let's take a look. Abby Johnson is in the other room. Here. Our first order of business is to present Planned Parenthood's Employee of the Year Award. Abby Johnson. For the writers of God's Not Dead! <laughs> Based on the life-changing true story. Clinic director. Actually be in charge of the abortions at your clinic. I have a chance to make a real difference. No matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're still gonna be a baby killer. <laughs> <gasps> I'm a baby killer? Can you even hear yourself talk right now about these procedures? These are little babies. I'm not going to apologize for doing a job that helps women in crisis. There's still a part of me that isn't sure. I know. But the one thing that all experts agree on is that at this stage, the fetus can't feel anything. Sorry to bother you, but they need an extra person in the back room. <gasps> are you free? Oh, yeah, the infamous ultrasound abortion. I saw it, and it was like it was twisting and fighting for its Oh, my God. We commend the souls of these hundreds of children. And, Lord, we pray to end abortion. I really appreciate what you've done for us. I'll not forget it. 22,000 abortions. <laughs> <laughs> oh! It's so gloriously awful. Day at the office. You can say that. This spring. It's your dad and me. You are our baby from the moment of conception. Discover the truth. Be a perfect instrument of corporate policy. We are an abortion provider. Behind the moment. Everything that they told us is a lie. Don't underestimate the repercussions of this. You gotta be careful. That changed everything. <laughs> Let me tell you what's gonna happen if you walk through that door. Unplanned. You have made an enemy of one of the most powerful organizations. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! One of the most powerful organizations. <laughs> Planned Parenthood struggles just to get funding. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, the fantasy world that these people live in. Oh my god! <laughs> so, immediately to combat that load of horse garbage, that load of horse hockey, that those those cow pies that we just witnessed, <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about. I'm going to read directly from the Wikipedia page about Abby Johnson, which cites sources for all of it, for for all the stuff that happens. Uh, 
For the briefest moment, she wrote in her memoir, Unplanned, the baby looked as if it were being wrung like a dishcloth, twirled and squeezed, and then it crumpled and began disappearing into the canula before my eyes. Canula, whatever. The last thing I saw was the tiny, perfectly formed backbone sucked into the tube and that it was gone. So yeah, it's all, it's all visceral, you know, I, you know, emotionally driven imagery right off the bat. So you can tell what kind of book this, this hack wrote. Um, Johnson continued working at the clinic for nine more days, but soon met with Sean Carney, leader of the local anti-abortion group Coalition for Life, with whom she was well acquainted after his years of activism against Planned Parenthood. She told him she could no longer continue assisting women in getting abortions. She resigned on October 6, 2009. Johnson said after her resignation that her bosses had pressured her to increase profits by to increase profits by performing more and more abortions in the clinic. Johnson estimated the clinic profited $350 on every abortion, none of which is actually, you know, citable. She, this is her word, but none of which can, is actually verified in the tax returns of Planned Parenthood. In fact, from what I get, from what I know about Planned Parenthood, they don't actually make any money. Uh, aside from like the regular medical, uh, uh, you know, aside from the get from grants and whatnot, as far as I can, as far as I know, they're I think a nonprofit. Uh, an article in Salon questioned uh, Johnson's statements regarding financial incentives for abortions, noting that abortions make up only three percent of Planned Parenthood's overall services. <laughs> And Fox News reported that Johnson was unable to provide any documentation or other evidence to support her allegations about pressure to perform abortions. So yeah, she just said she was pressured to, had no documentation to prove such a thing. Johnson's description of her conversion has been questioned. Planned Parenthood stated that its records do not show any ultrasound-guided abortions performed at the day Johnson's... Johnson says she witnessed the procedure and the physician who performed abortions at the Bryan Clinic stated that Johnson had never been asked to assist in abortion. Although Johnson said the abortion was of a 13-week-old fetus, records from the Texas Department of Health show no such abortions performed at the Bryan Clinic on the date in question. So, right there, just immediately her story is is bold, is is BS because there's nothing she that's not backed up by anything. It's all hearsay. It's all her, her spitting anti-abortion rhetoric, not, you know, that's none of which has been backed up by any sort of corroborate, corroborating evidence. According to a court petition filed by Planned Parenthood, Johnson was put on, put on a performance improvement plan four days before her resignation. The petition says that following this, she was seen removing items from the clinic and copying confidential files. Okay, so she's breaking HIPAA laws. That's great. And had given the resume, home address, and phone number of an abortion provider to Coalition for Life. So she was already breaking the law in service of anti-abortion activists. Planned Parenthood was granted the temporary restraining order against Johnson and Coalition for Life after Johnson's resignation. The order was lifted by a court a week later. Johnson herself says the performance improvement plan was due to her reluctance to increase the number of abortions. Johnson also denies the accusations that she removed, copied, or distributed any confidential information and said in her book that her attorney disproved them at the time that the temporary restraining order was lifted. Sure he did. Johnson's story received national coverage. She was embraced by the anti-abortion movement. Her story went national in 2009 compared to to Norma McCorvey, the Jane, D- Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade, the United States Supreme Court case that legalized in that. So yeah, she's basic. 
basically, it sounds like she was already be being an anti-abortion activist while working at Planned Parenthood. And suffice to say that Planned Parenthood only provides abortions as a as a medical procedure for the women who desperately need it and they're and they're heavily regulated. Anybody who looks into planned parenthood and and knows anything about practicing abortion is could tell you this. But yeah, this woman is full is obvious like we there was just all there was just recently a, a news break of another pure flicks biopic, uh The Case for Christ. Um By uh, what's his name? Lee Strobel. It, it they finally re revealed that Lee Strobel had made up the entire impetus behind Case for Christ, and which we already kind of knew. It was just confirmed that he made it all up. So I would not. So yeah, this this Abby Johnson, it, it she she basically is famous for m being a mouthpiece for anti-abortion rhetoric. And by all accounts, is basically just somebody who's profiting off the anti-abortion movement, and not re and not really, you know, and, and by all accounts, didn't even per perform abortions while at uh, while at Planned Parenthood. But you know, that's not going to sell books if she didn't actually perform them and just actively stole records to give to an anti-abortion uh, activist group. <laughs> so yeah. Being acquainted with and ha being in contact with an anti-abortion group while working at Planned Parenthood seems kind of to, to put your story into question. You know, your side of the story is kind of up for debate now, I would say. So yeah, that's going to be fun. And you know what? As much as I try to be... As much as I try to be open and understanding and unbiased about this sort of stuff, when your movie isn't even trying to cover the fact that it's basically propaganda for for it's for whatever audience you're put you're selling it to I don't have I don't think I have to take you as seriously I'm not taking you seriously as a movie cuz you're not a real movie you're an exploitation movie through and through and you know what I th I, I was going to say I'm not going to hide if I laugh out loud in the theater, even if there are people there, but at the same time, I know, I I'm, I'm a consci conscientious theater goer. I didn't. I was about to say that, and I thought to myself, if somebody did that to a movie I was there to see, and that I paid money to see, then even if it's just the four of us in the theater, it as a as a conscientious theater goer, even if I, even if this movie cracks me up and has me has my sides bursting from laughter i owe it to the other theater goers whatever theater hopefully there's nobody else there knowing my area that probably won't be the case but hopefully i'm in an empty theater so that i can just laugh have myself a gay old time and laugh and laugh and laugh at this whole thing. I say Gale time just because I was um, in reference to the Flintstones mainly because uh, I was re uh, um, Saber Sparks recent video was about Hanna-Barbera. So that was in my mind recently. That's why that's why that's the only reason why it came up was a reference to the Flintstones, which had been in my brain because of the Saber Spark video. At any rate, yeah, I hope to have a 
uh, just a, a rollicking good time at this laugh riot because that's what it's going to be for me because it's not a real movie. It is garbage. And it's gonna, I'm going to treat it as garbage because it is fetid garbage regurgitating un, un, con, unconfirmed, un, entirely biased rhetoric used to placate uh, placate an audience, placate this entire audience. It's not meant to be truthful. It's not meant to be accurate. It's only meant to stoke the flames and and preach to the choir. And I have no business. And and so when people say and so if people call me out for being anti-religious and anti you know religious movies, and I'm gonna tell them, when you make a good movie, I will commend you for it. If your entire movie is there to exploit Christians, to take their money, and give them just the same garbage they hear from their pastor, from their friends, from their social groups, from their, you know, their show. And it's just to, just to pat them on the head and tell them they're right. I don't have to take you seriously as a movie. That's why I, like, I'm, like, one of, I like, it, like, most of my good friends are Christians. It's kind of hard not to be friends with Christians in America. So, the and but the thing is, the friends that I am, the friends of mine that are Christian, are are usually on the same boat with me because I'm not making fun of them for being Christian. I'm making fun of the the same. We are we are against the same people in that we're against people who are wildly bigoted and hateful and don't represent how Christ is usually, how Christ in their eyes. The people they see who are quote-unquote Christians, the, the, the mainstream Christian as it is, the conservative Christian, is not who they are. They don't see that as, as following Christ's message, and so they have no problem calling that out too. We are on the same side in that regard because it's not about the religion. It's about that asshole over there who's being who's being a hateful, bigoted piece of garbage. It stops being about the religion and begins entirely becomes entirely about about your hateful message. And that's what unplanned is. And it's going to be a hell of a fun thing to witness with uh to to share in the in the laughter with god awful movies <laughs> so yeah if you listen to me and you want and you want an entire podcast dedicated to this kind of garbage definitely check out god awful movies they are just they tear this stuff apart be 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 warned that they do go really far with the, they push the they push the edge with their humor and they are they are willing to go much farther and be much bluer than I am. But if you were but if you got but if you got the but if you got the stomach for that then have at it cuz I love it. Yeah, uh that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at gumbycatnetwork.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by following us on your on your browser, favoriting us, and whitelisting us on your ad blocker. And be sure to check out all of our other fine programming there too. Uh, the podcast I mentioned in the, in the previous episode, uh, the various retrospectives, and the um, you know if I and, and 
hopefully jukebox theory. I don't know if I'm gonna do epic fail, uh, sequelitis, or um, or a bad adaptation as podcast just yet. I'm gonna hold off on those for right now, but I definitely want to do jukebox theory down the line. So uh, expect those also on Gummy Cat Networks uh, in the by the end of the year, hopefully. Uh, by next month, starting for the retrospectives, and then uh, uh, and then uh, be sure to check out uh, Living in the Stacks. Uh, we re- we recently did Chimo uh, Achebe's uh, Things Fall Apart. We're gonna we're looking to record for April, pretty coming soon. That it's gonna be uh, the Bone Setter's Daughter by Amy Tan and uh, Amy Tan or Amy Tan. Maybe it's Tan, Amy Tan. Uh, the, we're gonna do the Bone Setter's Daughter for April. Uh, so if you want to check out that, then, uh, that's, that's where, that's where you, uh, that's the book to check out from your local library, uh, which we all support. We all do the podcast by supporting our local library. Um, be sure to check out all of Donna's stuff over at Snarkast, uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Once More with Feeling, uh, with Supernatural finally, uh, having its, having its final season announced. Be, you can also go back and re, re, and, and relive the series through uh, the family business. Uh, v- Vanessa is still doing, uh, she's moved from odd Vegas to odd Nevada now. Uh, we're still getting people liking Phantom of the Podcast, so people are checking that out, it seems like. Uh, well, hopefully we can get that back up and running again. Uh, Mike is still working on his student film, so hopefully when that rank, uh, when that uh, wraps up, we'll get back to Majay. Uh and then I'm hopefully gonna get Tragic Missile finished. We have all the recording. We have all the auto recorded. I just need to. Ed, I just need to have the time to edit it and finalize it. And then I'm gonna hand it back. Hand the reins back over to uh, Jim Hansen over at Cinematic for the People, because I know he wanted it. To, he wanted to try and do a season two sort of, uh, kind of like how the Adventure Zone went from uh, the Balance arc to the Amnesty arc. Uh, he's gonna try. He's gonna go for something similar with uh, Tractor Missile. Hopefully, if I can, if I can get off my ass and finish editing. But uh, so it's what's in the works right now. Gumby Cat Networks. And if you yourself are a podcaster and you would love to join a fine little network, uh, you can do so by sending uh, all inquiries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you and see if you can see if you're a good fit for us. Uh, otherwise, if you're listening to us on the go, you can find us on your various podcast providers, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, all of that good stuff. And, uh, and, and, uh, be sure to leave a five star rating and review and, uh, comment to let people know that you like the show, uh, and share it with your various, various friends and social media. Uh, the social media home of Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcorn junkie. Uh, Twitter at corn junkie pod. Not as active. On Instagram at popcorn junkie podcast. Um, I may get more active as I announce episodes there, but it, Instagram's not very interactive uh, for my purposes. Uh, and I, I'm also not very visually minded. I don't know how to continually re- use the platform like I do Twitter and Facebook. I'm not a photo person either. Uh, uh, I'm going to hold off on YouTube and Twitch for right now since I'm going to hold off on the video side of things. But, uh, you know, I'm, de- def- I'm definitely going to share the first episodes of Poke Cinema and uh, Hail to the King on this feed 
when they're when they premiere and then you can and then you can find them on their own feed as well and then you can find them on their own separate feed so if you want a taste of what the retrospective is going to be like i'll i'll post the first episodes here and then you can check out the full series as it comes out throughout april and may so i'm working on that right now Uh, that's the main thing i'm going to be working on for uh the next couple of weeks and then uh and then, uh, yeah, if there's anything else, any other, uh, you can follow me on Stardust, uh, on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. Uh, you can come join the fun that we're having there. Uh, share your thoughts on trailers, movies, TV episodes, all that's on Stardust. And then uh, if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of, uh, you know, responses you want to, you have to my reviews, what you, you, what you thought of us. Maybe if you have more, maybe if you have your own sort of headcanon for us and, and explanations uh, for it, or uh, your thoughts on trailers, your favorite trailers, that sort of thing. Uh, send all that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com and make sure to leave in the message or the uh, subject line that you give me explicit permission to read it out. Otherwise, I won't. Otherwise, I'll just paraphrase it. And uh, that does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I'm actually made it to the front page of Reddit. Side note uh, made it to the front page of Reddit. Never thought that would happen in my lifetime. I also had my had my post jacked for another subreddit, which in the span of 24 hours is kind of interesting. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look at Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork.